In Acts chapter 26, Paul is appearing in front of King Agrippa. This is one of the prolonged series of legal disputes, legal hearings that took place uh, before Paul eventually ends up arguing in front of Nero, most likely not once, but twice, the first time uh, being released and acquitted, the second time eventually being uh, convicted and martyred. Paul to Agrippa makes a very interesting statement, the significance of which will begin to emerge as we go through this particular topic. But beginning at verse 20, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 26, he writes, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all of the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." It would undoubtedly be against that backdrop that Paul would later describe himself uh, in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I was the chief, I was the foremost of all sinners. I'd like to start off by just thanking uh, some individuals for their help in bringing this uh, moment to occur. Uh, Michael Mahoney, our administrative pastor, Uh, his intern, Harold Gandhi, who asked me to talk on this particular subject. And as I was preparing, uh, I had the invaluable assistance of three men, uh, Dr. Greg Frazier. Dr. Frazier is the head of humanities out at the Master's University, a longtime professor of history. Uh, Han Cho, Han is a practicing attorney, Uh, He also serves with me on the Board of Elders here at Grace Church. He is the chairman of the Grace Advance ECA ministry. And our vice chairman uh, for the Grace Church Board of Elders, the Honorable Carlos Chung. Uh, All three of those men provided great and invaluable encouragement uh, as I was attempting to refine the thinking here. The title is somewhat rhetorical. Uh, I've put it in quotes. Uh, I did so for a couple of reasons. First of all, it uh, became apparent to me that not all of us would be comfortable with the concept of voting as a matter of stewardship. Some of us would be more comfortable understanding it as a civic duty, as a privilege, For some of us, the second reason is that it may be something of a sliding scale. The more opportunity for influence that God provides you in a particular culture, as that increases, the sense of stewardship may accelerate with that. Uh, Put another way, if you live in a culture in which you never have the opportunity of voting, you don't have to worry about it. If you've been entrusted with the opportunity of voting, if you've been entrusted 
with an ability, uh, heritage, training, education that would allow you the opportunity to participate at high positions within the political system. Mike Pence, for example. Uh, The issue of stewardship increases in your sense of your use of the franchise, your use of the vote. My concern isn't so much that you be persuaded that it is a stewardship. Uh, If you're more comfortable thinking of it in terms of being a civic duty or privilege, fine. My concern is more that we act as wisely as we can uh, in the context thereof. So that's part of what we're, that's the main focus of what we're going to be wanting to discuss in this particular lesson. Uh, I prayed earlier that I want you to leave with a focus primarily on the character of God and on the Word of God. This is a very practical, a very mundane task that we're focusing on, the issue of voting. And yet, as always, when we gather as believers, our primary focus needs to be on the Word of God and on the character of God. And surprisingly enough, when that happens, we have a much better ability, a much better opportunity to take practical action. Because of the fact that we come from a wide variety of backgrounds, uh, there are believers here who their spiritual heritage goes back to the uh, German Mennonite background, culture in which political action was really not contemplated. We have believers here who go back to the Scottish Reformed tradition uh, in which political action was literally mandated by the culture, uh, by the doctrinal materials. Uh, We come from a wide variety of backgrounds, so I literally lifted a slide from a lesson I taught last summer on the believer in government. I said, we need to accept one another. There needs to be a certain amount of tolerance, realization that we will come from different backgrounds. uh, And as a result from that, we need to keep our mind centrally focused. The key question, the key issue is always whether or not a particular practice or concept is supported by Scripture? Is it consistent with Scripture? Is it not prohibited by Scripture? The discerning among you will recognize that those are three very different questions. And yet, if we keep them in mind, uh, we will allow our time to be best used and to be most productive. William Wilberforce... Can I see a show of hands? Are you familiar with who Wilberforce was? All right, most of you are. Uh, William Wilberforce was the British aristocrat uh, who was led to saving faith by John Newton. John Newton, the slave trader who became a great man of God, the author of the hymn uh, Amazing Grace, also glorious things of thee are spoken. Newton leads Wilberforce to Christ. Uh, And then Wilberforce, the young aristocrat, born into, uh, essentially into a parliamentary seat in the House of Lords, uh, begins to think that maybe the thing he ought to do is to go to seminary. Uh, 
We've probably heard that a few times over and over again around here. Uh, he goes talking to John Newton about this, and Newton takes a long, hard look at the man, realizes his background, realizes uh, what God had put into him and where God had placed him. And Newton says, no, it is to be hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and the good of the nation. It was none other, therefore, than John Newton who directed and encouraged Wilberforce to stay in Parliament. And as he was in Parliament, along with the, and interestingly enough, the uh, assistance of his mentor, uh, Wilberforce leads the battle, took several decades, uh, but eventually led to the outlawing of the British slave trade. He was a member of a group known as the Clapham Society uh, that also led to a number of, or they took the initiative and the British Parliament passing a number of laws that would relieve uh, the condition of the working class uh, in England. It is possible that uh, due to that impact, uh, Karl Marx, who wrote in England, if I recall correctly, uh, did not see what he thought he might see, and that is the Marxist revolution taking place in England. So there's a sense in which Wilberforce being salt and light uh, may well have altered the course of history in this regard. Wilberforce, however, makes the comment, describing himself, a man who acts from the principles I profess reflects that he is to give an account of his political conduct at the judgment seat of Christ. Again, employing the idea of something of a sliding scale, not all of us are going to have that particular level of access to the political system. Not all of us are going to have that particular opportunity. And not all of us will have that particular calling uh, within the church. Wilberforce did, and he well understood. He well understood that to a degree he faced the issue of voting uh, as a matter of stewardship. What this is not, let me be emphatically clear. We are not in any way attempting to uh, implement something of a backdoor approach to developing or encouraging you to take a social gospel. We're not trying to encourage you to do something to enter in, in this life, in this world, uh, an amillennial approach to the kingdom of God being established in our culture. We are premillennial. We are post-trib. Evil men, Timothy tells us, will go from bad to worse. It will be imperative that as that occurs, we as believers continue uh, to be alert to what's going on, continue to uh, look to the Scripture as our guide for how we best continue in the truth in which we have been told. This is not an attempt to uh, begin to get us to take effort to resolve problems that ultimately are spiritual by some kind of an organized right-wing conservative Christian political effort. Nor is it an attempt 
uh, to persuade you to be politically conservative or politically liberal. At any particular time in history, those labels may or may not be biblically oriented. I have to tell my students that it is usually a wise idea to realize that the interests of a conservative political jurist on the Supreme Court may or may not coincide with the theological doctrinal conservative. Uh, As a matter of constitutional law, sometimes the decisions that are most favorable to the church have come from some of the more liberal justices that are in our courts. So we have to be discerning even there. Nor am I attempting to persuade you uh, to become a member of a particular party, a particular political party. Um, The same thing applies. In times, at various times, some of the political parties that we know may or may not have an agenda more conducive to biblical truth, more in line with biblical truth, more supportive of biblical truth. I asked my wife, uh, now what's the color that goes to uh, the Democrats on TV news? And she told me, and I made sure this morning that I wore a striped tie with both blue and red. (laughs) And it's for that very reason. We are not wanting to try to move you to be uh, members of any particular political organization or perspective. Our focus is on Scripture. Our focus is on the Word of God. Our focus is on us being equipped to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, uh, to be salt and light in the generation that God has placed us in. What this is, this is to be a focus on ultimately practical principles based on solid biblical theology. When or if you choose to cast your vote, and in the course of our discussion, we'll examine that particular possibility of not voting. Uh, When or if you choose to vote, the key question is, how can you do so in a manner that is most consistent with Scripture, most consistent with your faith, the doctrine that you are taught here, the doctrine that you believe, the doctrine that you uh, have been trained in and by which you have been saved, and your life in Christ. How can you walk to the polls? How can you go to the poll or submit your ballot by absentee ballot and look yourself in the mirror and say, I did the right thing as best I understood it? That's, That's our primary focus. To do that, We're going to focus on 10 key questions. And in my speaker's notes, I wrote down, well, depending on your counting, maybe 11, but 10 sounds better. (laughs) 10 key questions. We'll walk through that. I have absolutely no idea how long it will take for me to talk through these particular issues. Uh, A dangerous thing to hear from a lawyer. But... um, (laughs) We'll go through there, and if we have any time remaining, and I fully suspect we will, uh, I'll open it to questions. Now, I said questions. I sometimes have to uh, intrude on a purported question and ask if there really is a question there, uh, as opposed to a narrative or definitive statement. 
And let me just state that in the event I do reach or receive any questions, I fully intend to call upon my colleague, Dr. Frazier, uh, for assistance as needed. So you've been warned ahead of time, Greg. Ten key questions. Let's get started on them. First of all, the key question to begin with is, should Christians have any political involvement whatsoever? The Anabaptist position, the Anabaptists were a group of reformers that emerged at or about the same time that uh, Calvin and Zwingli uh, and Luther uh, were working in Germany and in Switzerland. Uh, The Anabaptists, we adhere to their position on believer's baptism, the idea that when you become a believer, baptism is an ordinance, Calvin would use the term a sacrament, uh, reserved to believers. Uh, You don't get baptized as an infant in full compliance with the Scripture. So we adhere to their views on that. We also note, however, that the Anabaptists at times uh, could be prone to having a certain lunatic fringe. Not every aspect of what they taught was totally accurate or appropriate, And in this particular instance, uh, we may have a challenge, we may have a question with them. All but one of the leading Anabaptists, uh, the sole exception being a man by the name of Balthasar Hubmeyer, tended to hold to the position that if you were a believer, you had no involvement in law, you had no involvement in government, uh, and basically your communal lifestyle was somewhat monastic. The key text they looked to was John 18.36, where Jesus in front of Pilate says, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, Probably one of my greatest heroes, uh, which is somewhat surprising since I grew up in in an environment in which his name was taught to be a four-letter word, uh, John Calvin, Calvin responds to that statement by stating, oh, dexterous expounders of Scripture. He goes on to point out that uh, that perspective ultimately ignores the reality of the fall. It ignores the reality of the fact that based on the fall, there is a propensity to evil, total depravity, if you're uh, wanting to put things in terms of uh, the TULIP acronym, Uh, and government must step in. Government and the institution or the uh, creation of law must step in to curb the evil and the propensity to evil that as a result of the fall lies in all of us, even to some degree after we have been redeemed. So there is a sense in which government serves a role of protecting a role of purifying, and ultimately even a role in some ways of driving people to that sense of frustration that Galatians 3 tells us uh, should lead people to saving faith in Christ. That perspective also ignores the fact that God's the one who has created government, Daniel chapter 4 tells us that God places in political power even the most basic, the most normal, 
the most nominal of men. Romans 13.1 tells us that there is no power in existence, no political authority, other than that God has appointed. Now, we'll come back to this concept in a few minutes. 1 Peter chapter 2 again tells us that particular issue. Another problem is that this perspective totally ignores the question of whether or not uh, we as believers have any social responsibility. Do we have a civic duty of government? Do we have any sense of stewardship of government? Any sense of stewardship of the opportunity uh, to participate in voting participate in government by the casting of our ballot for the candidate or candidates of our choice. Next question, and again, we need to allow a certain amount of latitude here, Uh, but the question that I put up is question number two, does political stewardship make any kind of sense? Uh, It will be controversial, I would look to Genesis 128 where God instructs Adam that he has the responsibility of multiplying, of filling, and of subduing the earth. In the wake of the fall, in the wake of the fall, when you read into the accounts of uh, Joseph and the famine in Egypt, the scripture indicates that God realized that this, to some degree, needed to be accomplished through the uh, involvement of the nation-state of Egypt. Uh, Paul, step back a moment. Joseph is visited with a dream in which he is challenged to be able to reveal to Pharaoh the meaning of a dream that Pharaoh had had. Uh, He is told that there will be seven years of plenty, that needs to be acted in response to, and there will be followed by seven years of famine. The nation-state of Egypt was given the challenge and the responsibility of taking action to help preserve humanity at that particular time, at least the parts that we knew about. Uh, Ultimately, as you know, Joseph's family comes down to Egypt, and it is through that that they are placed in the land of Egypt uh, for which they will, wherewith they will eventually be enslaved for some 400 years. A much more broad perspective on the topic would come from Luke 12:28, and again, this may go to the idea of something of a sliding spectrum of responsibility. To whom much was given. Of him, much will be required. This is uh, one of the key lessons in one of the parables that our Lord taught. To whom much is given, much is required. Uh, As a general rule, this does need to be considered as applicable in the lives of all believers. As God gives you the opportunity, as God gives you ability, you have the responsibility of using it for his glory and for the good of his church and those around you. 
I started off by reading from Acts chapter 26. This is the one time in all of Scripture that you will find the word vote. If you run it through the search function of both the ESV and the NASB, type the word in vote, hit search, one verse and only one verse will come up. And this is the verse that Paul mentions. He says, I cast my vote. Paul was, uh, by our modern standards, something of a special prosecutor, uh, charged with stamping out that upstart group of heretics known as Christians. Uh, He also, by virtue most likely of being a member of the Sanhedrin, had the opportunity uh, to cast a vote uh, in connection with whether or not believers would be put to death. And he indicates uh, before Agrippa that he did so on at least more than one occasion, so a number of times. There's a, a plurality that is implied there. He uses the term sephos. Literally, it means a pebble. The idea is that the way they would cast a vote would be that they would be uh, each given little tiny rocks of different colors. And the one color would mean, of course, acquittal and release. The other would mean conviction and death. He said, I cast my vote in favor of their death. Now, contemplating that, and again, I mentioned that later on, First uh, Timothy 1, 12 through 15, he notes that in doing so, he had been, by his own terms, the chief of all sinners. Now, this is not in any way uh, to detract from that sense, biblically supported, that he had been truly and fully forgiven. And yet he continued to have a sense of the responsibility that he had had for the casting of his votes. Uh, The one time again in all of Scripture that we read the term vote, and the guy who makes that statement ultimately gives indication that he felt a certain level of accountability to God for the use of that particular privilege. Yeah, the idea of a certain amount of stewardship when you have that opportunity to vote is not unbiblical. Again, you may be more comfortable referring to it or thinking in terms of it as an idea of civic duty or civic privilege. I don't have a, respons- I don't have a concern about that. When you think about it, uh, however, on a more general sense, the vote is only a formal expression of a collective approval or rejection of a particular person or proposal. Uh, We've institutionalized something. We establish it uh, periodically during the course of our country's life. But ultimately, it brings to light what is taking place in the minds and hearts of the people uh, in America. Elsewhere in Scripture, as a result, we would want to look at situations where that collective approval or disapproval is demonstrated Uh, and how God sees it, how God responds to that. 
Uh, as I indicate elsewhere in Scripture, we see communities exonerated or held accountable for their collective approval or rejection of a particular individual or position. Uh, the book of Jonah tells us that Nineveh, from the king on down, were exonerated when they repented. They repented from their evil. They turned to God following the preaching of Jonah. Probably one of the greatest revivals, uh, if you will, one of the greatest works of the Spirit on a mass-wide level uh, in all of recorded history. In contrast, in Matthew eleven twenty-one through 24, uh, Christ notes the rejection of him on a collective, again, overall level, uh, by the communities of Bethsaida, Capernaum, Tyre, and Sidon. They had rejected him. He knew it, and he called them on it. So yeah, there is a sense in which, even more broadly, the idea of a vote is something that God is knowledgeable concerning. He understands. I woke up this morning, and I had to remember 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. Uh, In the context, Samuel has been informed by the people of Israel that they do not want his sons to follow after him in a prophetic role uh, as the interceder between them and God. At that particular time and prior to then, God had effectively been governing the people of Israel through, of course, the guidance of the judges, through the guidance of the uh, prophets that uh, appeared uh, on his behalf. And he makes a very interesting statement to Samuel. They have not rejected you. It's not you, Samuel, that has been rejected. They have rejected me from being king over them. Yes, there had in fact been a certain vote if you will, in terms of the disposition of the mind and the heart of the people. And in a united sense, with all but a few people, such as Samuel, who would have felt otherwise, they had rejected the role of God as king over them. Voting, a significant civic duty, a significant privilege, Uh, When this was being brought to my attention as an alternative approach, uh, I had to remember Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. This is an admonition given through the prophet Jeremiah to the people who had been transported as exiles uh, to the land of Babylon. God says to them, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf For in its welfare, you will have welfare. We pray for the city in which God has placed us. Those of you that live in Los Angeles, pray for the city of Los Angeles. Those of you that live in Santa Clarita, we need to pray for the city of Santa Clarita. We need to pray for the state of California. And yes, we need to pray for the nation of the United States of America. And we seek the welfare of of those particular organizations. And one of the means by which we have the opportunity to do so is by the ballot. We have the opportunity 
uh, every pro- prolonged period of time uh, to cast a vote for what we believe will be the best of the alternatives presented in front of us. Now, as I indicated earlier, we have to come away from this. We have to lead into this with a certain amount of deeper understanding of the character of God. We encounter this paradox, and I've captioned it in front of you, the paradox of voting. Ultimately, we encounter this in our doctrine of soteriology and our doctrine of saving faith. No man comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. There is always God's role in the saving of an individual, and yet there is always the issue of human responsibility in choosing to repent, in choosing to turn to Christ with saving faith for the forgiveness of sins. We don't in this life with our fallen intellect, fully understand how that works out in the issue of a person coming to Christ. I would suggest to you that the same thing is totally true in this particular area as well. Uh, When people reject God, they have the responsibility for doing so. And yet at the same time, God is totally sovereign. He works even with that rejection Uh, in creating and moving things for his own glory. God's sovereignty. If you heard Dr. Lawson this morning, he read Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. God declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah in chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord enthroned, high and exalted. He is totally sovereign. His sovereignty will not be thwarted in any way whatsoever. I mentioned earlier Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Romans 13 tells us that there is no authority that exists other than is established. Now, that establishing may be an establishment by way of allowing but it is ultimately established by God himself. Sometimes God will raise up people to topple an authority that he has earlier in his sovereignty established. And at the same time, we have the truth, we have the reality of human responsibility. 1 Samuel 8, 7, they did not reject you, Samuel, they rejected me. And as a result of that, they had the responsibility of having a monarch by the name of Saul put into authority over them. As a result of that, there was a line of kings that in the great majority of the kings that served over the people of Israel and Judah, the men were very imperfect, they were unrestrained, and that sense of propensity to evil was visited upon the people. Ezekiel 20, verse 24 through 25, uh, has a very interesting aspect of this as well. Uh, God tells the people that because they rejected his statutes, they rejected his ordinances, they rejected his laws, he gave them over to laws, 
laws largely of their own choosing, their own making. Uh, And if you look at this in an English version, it may be subject to misreading. It says, by which you could not live. The idea tends to be, in most of our reading, when we look at that at first, they're saying that we can't comply with them. That is not what is being pointed out here at all. Those laws make life hazardous. Those laws can kill you. And if you consider uh, the current state of the law in America on the issue of abortion upon demand, yes, most definitely there are times in which the laws that we choose can, in fact, lead to the loss of life. So, yeah, there is a sense in which uh, there is human responsibility and God's sovereignty both simultaneously working at the same time. Keep this in mind when you go to the ballot. And by the way, a certain sense of this is absolutely essential uh, if you work in the legal world, if you uh, spend much time looking at government, Uh, if you don't have this sense of overriding paradox, of overriding balance between the sovereignty of of God and the responsibility of man, uh, you can lapse into, on the one hand, idleness, doing nothing. God's got it all under control. I don't need to have anything to do. I don't need to do anything uh, to solve this particular particular issue. And the scripture would indicate that God does not look highly on that perspective. The alternative is to walk away with either a sense of pride and ego because we solved the problem politically or a sense of despair because we tried to solve it, we tried to cast our vote, and we were unsuccessful. Therefore, we're heading for total disaster and restraint. God is still in control. He is still in sovereign charge over the situation. So there is that sense of paradox Uh, that follows us even into the ballot box. Now, the next question, in an age of sophisticated polling techniques, will individual votes really make a difference? Mathematically, it may well be the case that they do not. Uh, However, despite the pollsters, we have seen instances in recent history over the last 50 to 60 years Uh, in which the pollsters were wrong. 1948, Dewey defeats Truman. Uh, That did not happen if your sense of history hasn't been trained. Uh, Truman won the election despite the headline. They took a picture of him holding up a paper in which it said, Dewey defeats Truman. 2008, California threw the posters a curve when Proposition 8 was passed. That prohibited gay marriage. It was ultimately declared unconstitutional in the state Supreme Court. And then most recently, Dr. Fraser pointed out to me that in 2016, uh, Clinton, actually on the popular vote, uh, exceeded that of Trump. Trump, however, won and prevailed by having a a higher number of electoral votes. The point that I'm really trying to make is ultimately this. Don't let the predictions of the pollsters lull you into an activity. 
if you are convinced that it is the right thing to do as a matter of stewardship or as a matter of civic duty, do the right thing and cast your vote. God may use it uh, in his sovereignty uh, to lead to a very surprising result. A question, and we will by no means resolve it at this particular time, that ultimately must be thought of, or at least implicit in this particular issue, is inaction on a particular manner acceptable or defensible in the sight of God? Is inaction on a particular matter ever acceptable or defensible in the sight of God? Uh, Esther. Esther is challenged by her uncle, Mordecai, when she becomes aware of the fact that there is a plot uh, pending to destroy, to commit genocide on the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Uh, She brings it, or her uncle brings it to her attention. And he says to her, whether you act or not, deliverance will arise, but consider whether or not God has placed you in your position such as this for this particular time. There is at least an implicit statement an implicit message communicated by Mordecai to Esther that, yes, God has put you in this position for this particular time, and you cannot sit by idly and take no action. Uh, There's an interesting verse in Obadiah chapter 11. The mandate, the warning is directed to the people of Petra, and the statement is made, on the day that you stood and watched the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, the destruction of the people of Israel, and did nothing, you became as one of those who aided in the destruction. Proverbs 24, 11 through 12, 31, 8 through 9 Uh, The situation is phrased, deliver those who you know are being led to death. Don't think that you can stand by there and say, we had no knowledge of this. We didn't know what was going on. And expect to be found blameless in the sight of God. Uh, One of my colleagues who strongly believes that this is a particular matter of stewardship made the comment in some of his materials to me. He says, look, uh, at least this is the gist of it. He says, if I am dealing with an election in which one candidate on a particular issue, namely the issue of abortion, has indicated that he or she will take action to restrain abortion, and I have another candidate who is going to take action to further enhance the opportunity to obtain abortion upon demand, can I sit by idly and not vote in the action that is going to restrain uh, abortion upon demand? So again, the issue has to be addressed, has to be thought through carefully, precisely, uh, on an individual basis. Can my inaction 
on this particular issue be justified in the sight of God. Okay? Question number five. This is where it begins to be much, much, much more practical. What do you know of a particular candidate's ability, his character, her character, his ability, or her integrity? Again, the Scripture does not preclude women from holding high positions of political office. Uh, The question is, what do we know of their ability, of their character, of their integrity? Question, how do you find out? Well, uh, you pick up the telephone and you call friends of yours who might have some information about this kind of an issue. I don't know how many times over the years I've had a telephone call asking uh, if I know the people that are on the ballot uh, for positions of superior court judge. And most of the time, I do not know them. I may know something of their reputation, uh, but most of the time, I, I don't know. Well, how do you find out? Uh, we are in an age, we're in a day and time where News information is probably far more available than any particular time in history. News resources on the Internet. Let me mention that as you use them, as you use them, you have to be very discerning. Most news organizations will have a bias or origin one way or the other. It may be very liberal the ones that our chief executive likes to refer to as fake news, Uh, or they may be somewhat politically conservative, again, by the terms or by the standard by which that is established in our own culture. Uh, You need to be reading them very carefully, reading them very precisely. Um, Are they reliable? Are they reliable? Now, with regards, again, to the issue of judges, um, you may want to check with the uh, state or county bar. That's a possible source of information. If you have access to it, uh, there is a news publication, particularly for the legal community, titled the Los Angeles Daily Journal. Uh, they will always do judicial profiles. You may be able to find those profiles in a library if you want to take the time to go look them up. Another way that you may want to do it is simply type in the name into Google and see what you find. Now, let me just make a a comment uh, about judges. Um, Don't punish the judge if you find that he or she Uh, has obtained a certain amount of notoriety for taking a particular action on a case of some prominence in front of them. Don't punish them by voting against them unless you have taken the time to make sure that you understand what was going on uh, in the facts underlying that particular decision. It may well be that the judge in question had no option, uh, no opportunity but to rule in the manner in which he or she did. Uh, We have, in fact, had instances in California 
were a judge following the law, not in any way violating any law of God, had to come down with a decision that was very unpopular, very controversial. Uh, And when the word of that got out, that particular judge was voted out of office. Uh, So look very closely at the underlying facts uh, if you vote against a particular judge based on some kind of a controversial ruling that may have taken place. One of the challenges that we deal with in trying to educate people and trying to communicate uh, what's going on in the ballot and the polls within the church is the fact that Internal Revenue Code 501c3 uh, basically puts severe restrictions on what can take place here at a church. Uh, To be able to have the 501c3 status, if you're not familiar with the term, what that is, it's a statement that allows us to be able to make our donations and then take a tax deduction based on those donations. One of the requirements for that is that the organization does not participate in or intervene in, including the publishing or distributing of statements, any political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to any candidate for public office. Uh, Put another way, we have to be extremely careful in the church as to how we speak to the issue of a particular campaign, uh, a particular election issue. Uh, We will, of course, speak adamantly, speak clearly, speak distinctly to issues of biblical morality. We will not in any way allow ourselves to be muzzled in that particular regard. Uh, we have to be, we have to walk a certain amount of, uh, we have to walk a fine line, a certain amount of a tightrope uh, when we speak into a particular election where it is a matter of choosing between two particular candidates. And I'll comment a little bit more on that uh, within a few minutes. This is one of the reasons why sometimes it's very helpful uh, to have public interest assessments, and yet we cannot and will not formally allow them uh, to be distributed on Grace Church premises, if we know about it. Uh, We'll quietly and politely ask the individual to not do so while they're here on the location of the church. Now, there are certain portions of our culture, which we're totally honest, uh, tend to disregard this. Certain ethnic groups, the churches within that uh, community, uh, really challenge this in their practice. And let me also state, if I understood him correctly, uh, our chief executive in his acceptance speech indicated that he would attempt uh, to be trying to see that this would end in the future. The opportunity of churches, if they claim this exemption, to speak or to not speak Uh, to the political situation. So we may see certain change in this regard. Listen closely. Again, we have to walk wisely, uh, and we have to be very discerning in terms of assessing individuals' particular abilities and character. What are the political positions of the various candidates? What are the political positions 
of the various candidates. And this, by the way, really does a backdoor uh, address to the issue of the integrity and character of the individual. As biblically-minded individuals, we expect that until a person comes to faith in Christ, they are depraved. We can't expect unregenerate people to act like Christians. So we shouldn't find it as a surprise uh, if one particular candidate uh, has a track record in relationships that is exceedingly immoral. We shouldn't be surprised if that's the case in two candidates in a particular election. Look past that to the positions that he or she will articulate. Has he indicated, has he promised that he is going to move in a direction that is biblical? Or has he or she indicated that if elected, he or she will move government along a course of conduct that further compounds evil in the sight of God? Which way are they going to go in their promised political positions? This may well be one of the most key issues when you're deciding whether or not to vote for a particular candidate. What philosophy will be demonstrated by his judicial appointees? Oftentimes, the nominees that a president makes for the Supreme Court may well affect the culture, the law, uh, the government of that nation for another 30 years after he is no longer in office. Who are his judicial nominees going to be? This is extremely important. Uh, The 20th century was also characterized by the rise of the administrative agency uh, as an entity of political influence and power. What kind of individuals, what kind of philosophy... Uh, in terms of their operation of government, in terms of their practicality, uh, in terms of their use of the taxing power, will be demonstrated by the executive or regulatory appointees. Look closely at that as well. And then finally, what are the tax and fiscal responsibility ramifications of specific positions? What are the tax and fiscal responsibility uh, issues of the individual? Now, this came up in the last election, this next question. This is really question number uh, 10 plus. Should we ever simply abstain? Should we ever simply just not vote? Well... The more I looked into this, the more I thought about it, and the more I think there sometimes is an attractiveness to this. If you find, and this was uh, an illustration that was given to me, if the two candidates were Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, yeah, you might not want to vote for either one of those individuals. Um, If both promise ungodly conduct, if both in their personal lives give every indication that they fully intend to follow and live out that commitment, yeah, okay, you may not want to uh, put a vote on that. 
It may be that as you look at the two candidates and you look in, uh, in the face of God in your time of prayer and your time in his word that you just cannot in good conscience vote for that. We can understand that. However, again, um, raise the question, and again, you have that divine paradox at work, paradox of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. If you do not act, if you do not vote, are you taking the step of allowing who may be the worst candidate to win? Are you allowing it, or is God sovereignly allowing it partly through the fact of your inaction. Uh, Which is the candidate that you think would have the worst impact? And you may want to vote for the other candidate. Which is the candidate that you can expect will appoint individuals to the Supreme Court that may be more difficult for the country to live with for the next 30 years? You may want to vote for the other candidate, the candidate who will place judges on that court much more acceptable to a biblical perspective. Or in voting for a particular candidate, are we voting for some other particular purpose? In voting for a particular candidate, are we voting for some other particular purpose? And I would suggest to you Uh, that at that point we need to begin taking a look at the political platform positions of the two competing parties. I mentioned here this is particularly important during a time of God's chastening. Uh, Ezekiel 19, 11 through 14 is preached upon by Uh, no less than Jonathan Edwards. He did so at the funeral of his uncle. And he points out, citing that particular passage, that sometimes in God's chastening of a people, he does so by the removal of capable, competent, trustworthy candidates That's the time when you look at the ballot and you say, of all the people that we have in our country, we couldn't find more than these two people. Okay? Sometimes there is that type of chastening that goes on within a culture. And at that point in time, it is particularly important that you step back and you look at the issue of the positions of the political parties Dr. MacArthur essentially did this in the sermon that he preached the Sunday before the last presidential election. If you were here at the time, or if you've listened to it subsequently, uh, what Dr. MacArthur did was to point out that in casting your vote for a particular candidate, in casting your vote for a particular candidate, you were casting your vote for the, the head of a slate of political party candidates. (coughs) Focusing on the issue focusing on the issue of biblical morality Dr. MacArthur pointed out that the scripture calls for certain positions on issues that are in controversy today. 
He made the statement that we have two leading parties, one party's position uh, as a whole at this particular time was more in keeping with the scripture than another party. He was not necessarily promoting an individual. He was promoting biblical positions and calling for biblical action to be taken within our culture. We might have been challenged if the vote had gone the other way at the Supreme Court. That's a challenge we'd be glad to take because we will call for biblical morality. We will call for biblical truth, uh, and we will not allow ourselves to be muzzled in that particular regard. Question number eight. At this point, this moves towards the issue of ballot measures, those uh, things that we find at the end of our mail-in or walk-in ballots that state, shall the people be taxed X amount of dollars for a particular program? They may also be uh, measures that call for whether or not a constitutional amendment should be made uh, here in the state of California. In recent years, the legislature has tended towards inaction to the point that uh, increasingly the public initiative approach uh, has been much more effective as a means of bringing into effect social change here within the state. Question number one, have you actually read the ballot measure? Take the time to read it. Take the time to read the sample ballots, the voters' guides that come out. What is going on here? Uh, Sometimes they are written in a deliberately misleading manner. Uh, I know from personal experience, a number of years ago, having worked for Municipal Bond Council, one of the most respected bond lawyers here in California told me how you do it. He says so that the people may acquire, and then you list all of the potential benefits, shall the public be taxed for a particular bond initiative? In other words, he is telling you, or they tell you everything that you're going to acquire, but not an awful lot of discussion as to what the potential cost is going to be. So read it carefully. Uh, It may have been deliberately written Uh, in a manner that will uh, try to distort your understanding as to what is going on. I wrote up here, be a political Berean. I can't tell you the number of times I've talked with people uh, who tell me that the law says thus and thus and so and so, and I say, okay, where does it say that? What does it actually say? And when you actually look at what the statute says, it's much different uh, than what the public image is. The Bereans in Acts chapter 17, 11 were described by Luke as being more noble than the people of Thessalonica, if I recall correctly, because they took the time to actually sit down and read and understand what the Scripture said. Do the same thing in evaluating a law or in evaluating a proposed ballot measure. Don't get sucked in 
to a lot of furor, a lot of hyperbole, a lot of uh, uh, excitement that's going on. Here's a good question. When you read or hear of a proposal for a program by a political candidate or a particular measure, ask the question, will it work? From a purely pragmatic, practical perspective, does it have a reasonable chance or probability of success? And if it doesn't, of course, the answer is clear. It should be voted down. The next issue, is it unduly burdensome? All Scripture is inspired by God that the man of God may be adequate, complete, lacking nothing, and equipped for every good work. And all Scripture, uh, thus inspired by God, includes the account of a man by the name of Rehoboam. Rehoboam comes to power on the passing of his father, Solomon. Rehoboam talks to the people after they approach him, after they're trying to get an alleviation of the social uh, burden that Solomon's programs had caused. Uh, he comes, they come to Rehoboam and they say, look, ease up on the people and we will serve you uh, faithfully. He talks to older counselors who say, yeah, that's right. That's what needs to be done. Then he talks to a group of younger compatriots, uh, and they say, no, you need to go in and you need to be hard, you need to be tough, you need to indicate that uh, you're going to be much more demanding than your father was. Unwisely, he followed their counsel, and 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel pull away. Don't pursue or support an action that is going to be unduly burdensome on the culture, on the society. Is it a reasonable tax burden? John Calvin, uh, in his Institutes, has a chapter where he talks about, or a section, I should say, uh, where he talks about the opportunity of a monarch to obtain tax revenues. And he writes that they, the monarchs, should also consider that their levies and contributions and other kinds of taxes are merely subsidies of the public necessity, and that it is tyrannical rapacity to harass the poor people with them without cause. Is the tax reasonable? Is it appropriate? Maybe even a good question is, will it create revenues that will offset itself? Or is it so burdensome that in Calvin's words, it becomes tyrannical rapacity. Does it impose an undue and excessive tax burden? Question number 10. Are the propositions, are the candidates' positions, are the proposals made consistent with God's purposes for government? Sub-aspect of that, will the proposed action take the government in a way that goes contrary to the lordship of Christ over government? The lordship of Christ 
meaning that it would cause the government to move in a direction that it goes contrary to or in violation of uh, purposes that are outlined in Scripture for the government. What are the purposes of government? What are the purposes that we look to government for? I'll just give you a few. Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that government is to punish and curb evil. Will the proposal increase that or will it diminish that? Will the candidate's position support that or go contrary to it? The government is to commend and support and endorse that which is good. The same question. Will the proposal, will the candidate's position move in a direction of supporting that or going contrary in violation to that? Will it provide for necessities of life? This is controversial. Uh, I wrote this into a manuscript that uh, the college eventually published uh, without giving the full quote, And one of my colleagues, he wrote, the liberals will love this. It was at that point I gave the full quote, which again is from Calvin's Institutes. Calvin had in mind something on the order of Joseph and the provision of foodstuffs uh, during a time of severe famine. Will it lead to the provision of necessities of life or will it go contrary to that direction? Will it protect the public quiet and the public safety. Put another way, uh, will it promote the defense of our nation? Will it promote proper law and order and proper public safety within our cities, within our communities? Or will it go contrary to that? Use your vote accordingly. And finally, will it promote public morality and public honesty? Scripture indicates that God hates dishonest weights and measures. The Scripture indicates that people need to be able to hold their personal property without worry about having it stolen from them at the point of a gun. Will the proposal promote public morality and public honesty, or will it move in a direction in which it weakens that? Again, use your vote as appropriate. Now, I wanted to include this. If you have your cell phones with you, you may want to take a photograph of this. These are some uh, supplemental sources that were brought to my attention. Uh, There are four links. The first is by my colleague, Dr. Uh, Dr. Han Cho, again, a Juris Doctor, whether you want to call it or not. Um, Han Cho wrote this particular article where he addresses the issue. Han holds to the issue of the perspective of uh, stewardship, a slightly uh, moderate perspective. There are two links there that were written by Kevin DeYoung, the pastor, And then by an individual who I do not know much of anything about him, uh, Dan Dorian. Not even sure if I'm pronouncing the last name correctly. Dan Doriani it would be. Uh, But these are available to you if you want to uh, take a look at them for further uh, reading at your uh, leisure. Uh, 
Finally, let's uh, wrap this up with a question. We've talked through these. We've thought through some of these issues. If you're like me, you may find yourself somewhat convicted. I ask myself, do you really believe that? And yeah, I do. And yeah, there needs to be a certain additional uh, effort to the process of voting taken by myself in my own life. How are we doing? Are we doing well? I imagine that in this uh, room, there are some of you who say, yeah, this is great. I've been believing this all along. This is exactly what I've been doing. Uh, Thanks for the encouragement. Goodbye, and we'll see you later. For most of us, we're going to be more in the B to uh, C plus, maybe C minus range, where uh, we need to excel still more. That's a nice way of saying, okay, we're doing a good job. We need to improve. And then there may be some of us who are in the position where it says, yeah, I really have to take seriously this issue, uh, this challenge of voting, this opportunity that we have uh, as God has allowed it in my particular life. So uh, ask yourself this. Think about this uh, as you're driving home, maybe this evening, maybe discussing it, and then... uh, Take action as you deem appropriate. Now, it is approximately 10 minutes until noon. Uh, Are there any questions? And again, questions back there. State your name first so I know who I'm talking to. Paul Harmon. Okay. The moral culpability of what? Yes. Yes, I think there is. And, and your question really raises an important distinction. Uh, Paul would be comparable to what we would say would be the juror who's on a trial jury voting for guilt or for acquittal. Uh, the other vote that we're talking in terms of is a vote in a civil or public election. Are they quantitatively different? Yes, they are different. Are they ultimately different in terms of as a matter of responsibility before God? The scripture indicates that the vote of a juror or the vote of a monarch to acquit the guilty or to convict the innocent, is wrong. So my point ultimately is that there was a sense, the one time we see Scripture using the term vote, uh, in terms of moral culpability for the use of that particular privilege. Good question. Excellent question. Yes? Duly noted. Again, um, the terms liberal, the terms conservative, when you look at different cultures, different political environments, may have a much different connotation 
uh, as you go, they, they don't necessarily transport, okay? Always look closely at the underlying biblical issue. Yes, tell me your name. The question is, in view of the fact that in the Gospels, in view of the fact that in uh, the New Testament epistles, we see very little concern demonstrated in terms of who is the monarch, who is the government. Uh, the question is, should the church be concerned with that? Am I correct? Okay. All right. The fact of the matter is, they did not have the opportunity placed in front of them of having a participatory role uh, in a culture or in a government. Okay. Um, yeah. This this is it's it's a difficult question. Um, you take the whole counsel of God together. You see that in the Old Testament there is a much greater concern in terms of the nature of the government, in terms of what the government should be doing. Does that mean that New Testament believers don't have any concern for that at all? Not necessarily. I would say that it indicates our primary focus has always got to be on calling men to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Only secondarily do we move into this particular realm. Um, yeah, I could go on on that more probably than I should, but uh, I'll listen to my own counsel. Any other questions? Yes, back here. Tell me your name. Okay. Bill made the question of, what if we hear that a particular candidate has been charged with a particular uh, bit of corrupt conduct or a particular offense? Should we do nothing? Should we wait until the courts have been uh, fully decided? My answer would be, I would definitely want to take it into account. I don't know that I would acquire, ascribe full weight to it if I knew that it had not been that not led to a judicial conviction. If it, had, for example, had been thrown out because there was a total lack of evidence, that would move in one direction. Uh, but if it was still pending, I'd probably give it a little bit more weight in my own thinking. Okay, I think you have to deal with that on an individual. Lawyers love to say this. You have to deal with this on a case-by-case basis. Okay. How credible is the allegation? How, how likely is it that there could have been a valid adjudication? 
or that there will be. We deal with it to very, with close scrutiny. Yes, Ina Jean. That is a question for another time and another much longer (laughs) period of discussion. Um, Again, on a somewhat sliding scale, God has given you a certain level of knowledge, a certain level of equipping. As he has equipped you, act in a manner that you think would be something that you could look at God and say, I was faithful to the challenge you gave me. Okay? Um, For some, and again, we've dealt with this, the whole issue of social justice, God at times will equip people in a particular culture with a great level of ability, a great level of knowledge in that particular area. Uh, I taught a session on a man by the name of Ebed Melech this time about a year ago. He was in a position where he could do something. God had equipped him. He did. He was very active. For those of us who are not in that position, we have a much lower necessarily standard of responsibility. Okay? Cast your vote. Do so wisely. Uh, And if God gives you a burden, if he places it on your heart to uh, be more involved, Take slow steps, very slow steps, and don't let you get pulled away from yourself, get pulled away from the priorities of the gospel. Any other questions? Yes. Hi, Ed. Great question. Uh, Let's just put it this way. If you know that the financial backing of a particular individual proposition or both is coming from a very immoral, dirty source, if you know, again, the word no, that they are fully expecting to use that leverage to push the government uh, in a manner contrary to biblical purposes. You may want to react accordingly in whether deciding whether to vote for that particular individual or measure or not. Again, deal with it on an individual case-by-case basis. But uh, sometimes the source of backing, the source of funding can be a crucial indication of which way you need to go. Well, we've covered an awful lot. Mr. Razor? Just, uh, one, one source uh, commented, there's two types of Christian voters. The one that does based on principle, and the other one just, just like lesser of two evils. So mm-hmm. just, we've already dealt with this. There's no discussion. Some people can choose the concept of endorsement versus voting. So if you, they feel that if I couldn't endorse the person that, you know, as, as a spiritual leader, then I won't even vote for him. I, again, I think that uh, you want to deal with that on a case-by-case, your own conscience basis. If it's Hitler versus Stalin, 
well, you may not want to cast the vote. If one individual is going to move or has promised or campaigned to move the government in a direction of a much more biblical nature than the other, you probably would want to look past the fact that he is a depraved individual or she is, as the case may be. You had a question, sir, and then we'll close with that. Uh, you. My, my name's Ray. Yeah, I, I pretty much uh, was... Uh, um, same question that you brought up. In a, in a closely contested election, when you have two candidates and neither one is, uh, you know, stomachable, uh, and you, uh, you go on the basis of the lesser two evils, uh, and you really don't want to do that. So there's uh, like a third party, an independent party, but that third uh, option is like a wasted vote. So you care to comment on that? Well, it's, it's interesting that you asked that question, and my colleague, Dr. Fraser may be more knowledgeable on this. Just this last week, an individual passed away uh, who inserted himself as a third-party candidate in, I believe it was 1992, uh, between, in the campaign between Clinton and the senior George Bush. Uh, and that individual was Ross Perot. Uh, would the senior Bush have been elected if Perot hadn't pulled away a certain number of questions? We can only speculate. Greg? Uh, actually, on that particular example, uh, there's been a, a, several studies done, and the determination is that Perot, contrary to popular belief, Perot drew voters away from both candidates equally. And so okay. Studies at the Masters University, just to um, and I, I teach political studies, so I believe in government, politics, involvement, etc. Uh, however, having said that, our first priority, what we are here on the planet to do, is to save the world, not judge it. And so, our, our first priority is to gospel and to advancing the kingdom of God rather than the republic of the United States. That's a secondary issue. Having said that, it's perfectly appropriate to be employed in government, like Daniel and Joseph and so forth in government, I mean in the Bible. Um, but in, in terms of the question of whether you should be involved or not, it's perfectly fine, but you should never give more to your political party than you give to the church. Amen to that. You should never spend more of your time working for the political party than you're working for the church. Amen. If it's your occupation, then that's a different thing. Obviously, it's occupation. It's like you do with any other occupation. Uh, but the priority always needs to be the kingdom of heaven uh, rather than the other. And in terms of voting for someone, um, I, I refuse to vote for the lesser of two evils because the lesser of two evils is still evil. Um, however, I do sometimes check boxes next to the names of people who are evil because everybody on the ballot is evil. They're all sinners. <laughs> and so the issue is, as George was saying, for me the issue is what will they do? That determines whether they are an evil candidate or not, not who they are, because they're all evil. But in terms of what will they do? And so I recently, in 2016, checked, punched the hole next to the name of a person of whom I completely disapprove as an individual, but who campaigned on doing good, and the other candidate campaigned on doing evil. 
And so I punched the hole. I did not vote for the person. I punched the hole next to that person's name in order to promote the, the policies that that person was going to promote. Um, and if, if both candidates are evil, if both of them are promoting evil, for example, I won't vote for anyone in a, any kind of significant position who is pro-abortion. So when both, both candidates or all the candidates are pro-abortion, then I vote for, I write in votes. You can do that in California. I voted for my father-in-law who was senator uh, three or four times. I voted for <laughs> <laughs> And the last uh, election, I actually voted for myself in one of those positions just for fun. But in terms of, it depends on how you view the vote. Uh, and that's just my own personal I think I recall hearing Greg teach on this where he was in the last election indicating that one of the reasons he was going to mark the box next to one individual's name as opposed to the other was who he promised, who the individual had said would be the type of judicial candidates he would be appointing. Exactly. Right. Uh, so we've covered that particular issue. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the character of God. We thank you for the fact that you have called us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Lord, I pray that the time that we have spent on this particular issue will bear fruit in the years and decades to come. Guide us even now, Lord, as we go about our separate ways to the rest of the day. Bring us back to worship again. Amen. You are dismissed.